Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And we are in studio. Back to back weeks, baby. Oh, it feels really nice to actually be in here. There's a lot of hard work that went into this place. We started with painting it, got this little fancy schmancy table, drilled my first hole (laughs) in a wall. Mounted her first TV. With some help from your hubby, but yes. (laughs) No, you're taking the credit for that one. (laughs) I, I love this this studio. It's very just, I don't know, it's a project of love, and I feel like it shows. It's coming together finally. But today's case is going to be a long one, so I'm going to dive right in. And today's case is one that terrifies me for numerous reasons, not only because of the brutality of these crimes, but because I tend to go a little too far in my research sometimes, and today that led me to watching numerous police interviews with him. And after researching this case, I can tell you that I absolutely believe that we have no idea to this day the magnitude or scope of this man's crimes. Who is this? Israel Keys. Oh, I've heard briefly of him because at one point there was a possibility he was connected to Lauren Spear. I think that's since been debunked, but they were looking at his route. But oh my gosh, this man is terrifying. He is one of the worst of the worst. Israel Keys is one of the most planned and controlled serial killers that I have ever researched. And that's what made this so uncomfortable is because normally, how do I even phrase this? Like you can kind of see the escalation. And with Israel Keys, you you certainly can once we go back in time and he tells us about his own escalation. But it wasn't something that was widely known for quite some time. Certainly, police had no idea until he told us himself. And it's that intense amount of control and patience that he showed in order to continue killing not only was terrifying, but it just makes you, or at least it made me, question the world around me. Like most people spend their days worrying about kids, finances, going to and from work, but Israel Keys. I hate to say it, a quite handsome man living in Alaska was meticulously planning how to rob, sexually assault, and kill as many people as possible all across the United States and for a very long time went undetected. That's what my mind thinks very differently than what he's probably sitting there in Alaska eating his ramen noodles thinking like, okay, what's my next thing that I'm going to do that's going to just destroy someone's life? And destroy is the perfect word for it because he robbed potentially so many people of not only their lives, but their possessions and any autonomy they had over their body. It's just, it's vile. And I do want to give a trigger warning going into today's case. I will have brief mentions of sexual assault against some of his victims and some discussion of animal cruelty. I'm not going to go into graphic detail about either, but I just want to prepare you because this man is sick. I'm going to start today's case a little differently than most. I'm going to read a passage from Israel Keys' suicide letter. Spoiler alert, thankfully this man is not here any longer to hurt more people. And I hate to even call this a suicide note because it's clear from this letter that his desire when writing it was not to take accountability, not to take any ownership, show remorse. It was to stroke his own ego. He clearly has these grandiose ideas of himself and shares his, well, general disdain for others in this letter. But what it showed me is a peek inside the mind of someone I thankfully will never understand. We talk on this podcast a lot about my desire to understand the quote-unquote why Mm -hmm. behind the atrocities that humans do to each other. But reading this letter, to me, it's, it's truly like peeling back a layer and seeing inside the mind of someone who has no soul, no empathy or compassion for human life, 
and someone who I never want to understand because understanding the mind of Israel Keys would be trying to understand a world where love for your fellow man, for anyone, does not exist. Instead of viewing the world as many of us do, where we are concerned about what we can do for this world, for each other, this shows how the world is viewed through the eyes of a true psychopathic killer. A worldview of what can I get from this world? What can I manipulate, control, and take from people to serve myself and myself only? There's a portion of this letter that they couldn't make it out, but I'm going to read to you the rest of it. And trust me, this is enough to get a very good understanding of who this man is. Where will you go, you clever little worm, if you bleed your host dry? Back in your ride, the night is still young, streetlights push back the black neat rows. Off to the right, a graveyard appears, lines of stone, bodies molden below. Turn away quick, bob your head to the seat, as straight through that stop sign you roll. Loaded truck with lights off slams into you broadside, your flesh smashed as metal explodes. You may have been free, you loved living your life. Fate had its own scheme and crushed you like a bug, you still die. Soon now you'll join the ranks of the dead, or your ashes the wind will soon blow. Family and friends will shed a few tears, pretend it's off to heaven you go. But the reality is you were just bones and meat, and with your brain died also your soul. Send the dying to wait for their death in the comfort of retirement homes. Quietly and quickly say, it's for the best. It's best for you so that their fate you'll not know. Turn a blind eye back to the screen. Soak in your reality shows. Stand in front of your mirror and you preen in a plastic castle you call home. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of scheme Americanize. Consume what you don't need, stars you idolize, pursue what you admit is a dream, then it's American die. Get in your big car so you can get to work fast on roads made of dinosaur bones. Punch in on the clock and sit on your ass playing stupid ass games on your phone. Paper on your wall says you got smarts. The test that you took told you so, but you would still crawl like the vermin you are once your precious power grid's blown. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of the scheme, Americanize. Now that I have held you tight, I will tell you a story. Speak soft in your ears so that you know that it's true. You're my love at first sight, and though you're scared to be near me, my words penetrate your thoughts now in an intimate prelude. I look in your eyes, they were so dark, warm and trusting, as though you had not a worry or a care. The more guileless the game, the better potential to fill up those pools with your fear. Your face framed in dark curls like a portrait. The sun shone through highlights of red. What color, I wonder, and how straight will it turn, plastered back with the sweat of your blood? Your wet lips were a promise of a secret unspoken, nervous laugh as it bursts like a pulse of blood from your throat. There will be no more laughter here. I feel your body tense up, my hand now on your shoulder. Forget the lady called Luck. She does not abide near me, for her powers don't extend to those who are dead. I could keep you. Let you be the master of your own fate, knowing full well what's at stake. My pretty captive butterfly, colorful wings my hand smears. I somehow repaint them with punishment and tears. Violent metamorphosis, emerge my dark moth princess. I would often come and worship on the altar of your flesh. You shudder with revulsion and try to shrink far from me. I have you tied down and begging to become my Stockholm sweetie. Okay, talk is over. Words are placid and weak. Back it with action or it all comes off cheap. Watch close while I work now. Feel the electric shock of my touch. 
open your trembling flower or your petals I will crush. Okay, I was at first stuck over the clever worm. That was the first sentence. And then whenever he talks about the red hair, I'm like picturing you. I know that's really... Red light. Red light. Hair, yeah. Um, But also this guy could have been a hell of an English teacher or a literature writer. I mean, that was very powerful. I have goosebumps. I'm a little uncomfortable from it. And, you know, he has a way with words for sure. But... I'm confused on the letter. So you said it was a suicide letter because it sounds like he's writing it to someone like a lover or something. Basically to his victims and taking ownership of like, I had control over you. You'll notice that he does a lot of possession words in this. My pretty captive butterfly, my this. And he's putting down throughout it like what we would consider the American dream because he's so above that, right? He has this bigger calling. He's the one that's going to be remembered. You're just bones and meat as he refers to you so it's showing his just disdain for our culture our way of life but also human life is nothing to him and that he is the one in control and can take it in a moment oh that's deep and you did such a good job reading that like your voice was so beautiful i'm just like the fuck is happening Israel Keyes was born January 7th, 1978 in Utah, second in a home of 10 children. In Utah. Well, you guessed it. Yeah. yeah. His parents, Heidi and John Jeffrey Keyes, had some interesting and very problematic beliefs. They raised their children in the Mormon faith, which isn't the problematic part. I should just preface when I say that. But when Israel was five years old, they moved to Colville, Washington, and his parents were very untrusting of any sort of government entity and modern medicine, which is why all the children were born at home. And their home was a one-bedroom cabin. With 10 kids? <laughs> How? That doesn't add I up. understand <laughs> that in many cultures, like even just having a home is wonderful. But my brain immediately goes to like, where did they sleep? My brain goes to bunk beds. I want to know where the bathroom was. So I did research that because they didn't trust government entities, they had no running water or electricity. Basically, if you think of conspiracy theorists with like the tinfoil hat, we have just described his parents. They were living off the grid. Very much so. And the parents ended up separating from the Mormon church. And here's why I call their belief systems into question. They joined the Christian Israel Covenant Church. If you aren't familiar, that church is a fundamentalist Christian identity church that practices white supremacist ideology. Oh, boy. I obviously know the disgusting rhetoric of white supremacy beliefs. I think we all do. Jeez, especially recently. But I didn't know what Christian identity was. So, of course, I got to Googling. And yeah, it's not great. So Wikipedia explains that Christian identity beliefs began to develop in the early 1900s by authors who regarded Europeans as, quote-unquote, the chosen people, and regarded Jews and non-whites as the cursed offspring of Cain. If you went to Sunday school, you probably know who Cain is. He was one of the sons of Adam and Eve, didn't do very good things. So they believed anyone that wasn't white, anyone that was Jewish— was part of the serpent hybrid, referring to the devil as the serpent. Wow. Pretty strong belief systems here. Strong beliefs and a lot of little uh, brains to corrupt. Ten kids, like they have all these these interesting thoughts. At a very pivotal age, Mm -hmm. they are being open to this ideology that, frankly, is disgusting. 
Christian identity promotes the idea that all non-whites, people who are not European descent, will either be exterminated or enslaved in order to serve the white race in the new heavenly kingdom on earth under the reign of Jesus. So basically, everyone that is not white, they believe that when Jesus comes back during the resurrection, the only people that will remain are the white people. And if there is anyone Jewish or blacks or anyone that is not white, they will either be gone, like I said, exterminate, or they will serve as their slaves. I always try and be very respectful of every religion. No, this is bullshit. But this is absolute bullshit. Its doctrine states that only white people can achieve salvation and enter paradise or as we call it heaven. So yeah, not a lot of great things being taught to young Israel. And I have said this numerous times, we can always feel bad for the child. I do not feel bad for the adult. And in Israel's case, I'm not sure I feel bad for either version of him. Now, Annie, we've done this a couple times now. I think this is episode like 35, 36, which, you know, Air high five four. (laughs) Very exciting. But during that time, I think we've come to realize that there's a couple precursors that we look for when Mm -hmm. doing research, right? So what are some of the behaviors that we'd be worried about with a serial killer? Sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Any kind of physical abuse. Abuse in general, I think, is always a huge red flag. Killing animals. Mm -hmm. Oh, is he doing all this? Mm -hmm. I'm missing a big one. Strike a match. Oh, pyros. Like fire? Arson. Arson. Mm -hmm. So arson, hurting small animals, obviously you said any like abuse, whatever the category that abuse falls under, and just tendencies towards antisocial behaviors. Well, Israel Keys definitely checked off some of these boxes. Where was he in the sibling line? He was second out of 10. Wow. Okay. So, so he, he was, was the one of the older ones. One of the ones. older ones. Mm-hmm. Real great role model these kids had. Obviously living in a remote cabin with no modern day creature comforts, the children were put to work basically to survive. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I can get on board with someone wanting to live off the grid. They hunted and foraged for their meals. They worked on local farms for extra money. Well, now there's shows like Alone where they literally go to Alaska and they try and live off the land, live off the grid. I, I support that for sure. And it's also kind of nice to think that everything they have at the end of the day, they worked for. That's Absolutely. admirable. I can totally give praise for that. Not their religious beliefs at all. No. But here's the problem. While the rest of the kids are out hunting, Israel was also with them, and he began a different sort of fascination with killing. It wasn't to survive. He admits to skinning a deer alive in front of church peers, and rightfully so, the kids were so disgusted by him and began trying to actively avoid him, as would I. Absolutely. That's horrific. And he's a kid. Do we know what age he was whenever he started doing these? He talks a lot in his interviews. He keeps mentioning the age 14. I'm going to guess, and this is just my guess, there's nothing to back this up, that some of this probably started before that. But age 14 is probably when he did something that we'll get into later against another human, and maybe that's what stuck out to him. Israel later would describe this time in his life as when his antisocial tendencies really took hold. He knew from the age of 14, as I said, that's kind of the number he keeps going back to, that what he thought was normal and okay, no one else really thought was normal and okay. And so in order to keep his interests a secret, he kept mostly to himself. He would start fires, there's the arson coming into play, in the woods and break into houses just for sport, basically, to see if he could get away with it. I'm not going to go into detail here, but there was also an incident of torturing 
probably many incidents of torturing small animals, but there was one involving a cat that was depraved, to put it lightly. I'm oh. not going to go into details. Take my word on it. It's it's just absolutely sick. And the, the people around him described it as like he was chuckling at this cat's torture, basically. And everyone around is going like, what the heck is wrong with this kid? Yeah, there's a lot of those early signs that he's starting to show, especially at a young age, even if we don't know the exact number. He's a preteen or a teenager, and that's really concerning. This is the time that if they were part of modern day society, I would highly recommend that you go and get your son a very invested team to help with his mental health because something has gone way off kilter here. And this might sound like praise for Israel for me, but believe me, it's not. But kind of to your point earlier, I would be interested to know what his IQ was because while socially he was completely inept, he seems to master almost any task put before him that didn't require social skills. At the age of 16, he had become such a skilled carpenter that he single-handedly built an entire cabin for his family. That's impressive. And it's so frustrating, like you said earlier, because throughout my research, I kept thinking if he applied just half the amount of time and intelligence he did into all these horrible acts into something creative. He could have been someone amazing who we're talking about in a positive light. Absolutely. He probably could have done a lot of good in the world, but unfortunately, Israel has no ounce of good in him. Now, Israel may have separated himself from his peers, and likewise, they did not want much to do with him, you know, rightfully so. But it seemed that he desperately sought his parents' approval. But when he could not live up to their very strict religious views, he told them, you know what, I'm an atheist. Whoa. Which to them probably didn't go over so well. No, that was like probably the worst thing they could have heard. Yeah, to them, this was unforgivable. And they kicked him out of the house, told his siblings they could never contact him. Like this was a slap in the face to his parents' way of life. And it was this time in his life that Israel became interested in Satanism. And I'm not going to talk about anyone's religious, whatever you want to believe, great, as long as it's not hurting anyone else. Clearly, his parents' religion is deeply going to hurt someone else to to tell people that somehow your race is better than another. But he took it a step too far. And he wanted and got the idea that he wanted to perform a ritualistic killing. Oh, even the the term of that is like very bad, very bad, wherever this, wherever this part of the story is going. I'm going to sort of interrupt myself here and tell you that a lot of information about Israel's crimes come from his discussions with investigators. I've told you that Israel was incredibly smart and he put a lot of effort into making sure his crimes would not come back to him. So, like I said, the extent of his crimes is not known even to this day, but I just want to point out that he had a very high opinion of himself. So there's no way to know if he's exaggerated the scope of his crimes. Maybe he even under-exaggerated. Maybe he was making things up for shock value. But I do tend to believe him because not only does it show a pattern of escalation the way he laid it out to investigators, but he was so calculated in the information, the little bits and pieces that he gave. So take this all with a grain of salt, right? This is mainly from Israel. There are certain things, and I'll tell you when we get to parts of the cases that have been confirmed, but... We need some proof to really validate what he's saying. Right. But you'll see throughout this case, he was very careful, and I I hate to use the word cunning because, again, it sounds like praise, but even though he did these horrible things, he tried to frame certain things in a way that maybe the public or his family would still have an ounce of like reputation intact it's like maybe he had a little piece of 
I don't really want to be bad. But no. Like, no. No, no, I'm not saying it that way. It's all about Israel. And the only thing that seems to bother him is how others might view his crimes. I think he was very uncomfortable with the notoriety, which was a little bit different. Yeah. Than a lot of people that are like, I want to be on TV and I want to be known for, you know, going down in this thing of glory. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Just everything I say about this timeline, I will let you know if it's been confirmed or not. But a lot of this is because Israel had to give the detectives his account of what happened. When Israel was 18 years old, he saw a girl tubing down the Deschutes River in Oregon. He admits to stalking her from the tree line before violently sexually assaulting her at knife point. He had originally planned to kill her. Remember that whole idea of his that he wanted to perform a ritualistic killing? But thankfully, he let her go. He said that this wasn't his first sexual assault, but the first time he had planned to murder a victim. The girl was between 14 and 18 years old. Unfortunately, his crime, this was never connected to him. I don't know if she didn't go forward. I'm not sure what happened there, but they haven't been able to officially tie like a person to this. That's horrible. So she was just on a tube going down a river and he basically yeah, snatched summertime, her out of the probably water. Summertime, probably having a drink with like your friends, yeah. sitting on your inner tube. Like We did that all the time in North Dakota. That's ugh, that's like unimaginable. I- yeah, and then someone comes out from the woods. It's my nightmare. Yeah. In July of 1998, Israel enlisted in the army. His army friends remember him as someone who kept to himself, but... He had a bit of a drinking problem. Maybe I'm underselling that here because it's reported that during the weekends when he was off duty, he would drink an entire bottle of wild turkey, which, sorry, wild turkey, (laughs) but that is, that is vile. That is. I wonder why he was drinking that much if it was like to get rid of the thoughts or if he just liked feeling that out of control or both. Or maybe because he was in the army, he had to suppress some of those urges is what I thought. Because if I remember correctly, wild turkey is like... 101 proof, I think right? I think it's Wild Turkey 101. Yeah, yeah. That's basically like just straight alcohol right to the gizzard. And he's drinking an entire bottle of it every week. That's a lot. That's a lot for anyone. Despite drinking heavily, he seemed to do pretty well in service. He was awarded the Army Achievement Medal for his service as a gunner. I had to look this up because I don't know diddly squat about the military. Same. What is a gunner? A gunner is a soldier who occupies a dedicated gun position in a military vehicle. So like if you see an army tank, he's at the top scoping out like what's ahead of him. If got I got it. that wrong, listeners, <laughs> let me know. But that's what that's what the Google told me, okay? He was honorably discharged and moved to Washington before moving in 2007, this is not that long ago, to Anchorage, Alaska. Wait, honorably discharged? How do you honorably get discharged? That's where you've done your service and it's like time to go and you haven't done anything where they would penalize you. Like you're not leaving for some people can get like honorably discharged, but they're leaving because they had, you know, suffered an injury. Okay, this is like he was done with his years of service. And for whatever reason, and I'm kind of glad you mentioned this. Because in quite a few cases, you hear about them entering these very like strict, rigid environments like the military and not being able to conform. Yeah. And besides this drinking thing, it seems like he did all right. He excelled. He's getting awards, you know, medals, all this stuff. So it's it's odd. He's a different type of serial killer than we're used to. Many of our listeners who heard our Butcher Baker episode already know this, but I am from Alaska. And so this was very bizarre to me that this man lived two hours from my family, a murderer who made a point to travel to kill his victims. I hate it. 
I hate it too. I'm cringing. I graduated from high school in 2005, so I was no longer there, but my family was, and it was hard for me not to have a selfish thought of, thank God he did not go to my hometown. It would be a murder in Alaska, one that didn't line up with his previous MO of traveling out of state, that would eventually lead to his arrest. Israel was living in Anchorage and running a construction company. He lived with his girlfriend. Again, not a normal serial killer trait. It does happen where people get married, all this stuff, and pretend to be like a good family man. BTK. Sure. But a lot of times then later we hear that their relationship wasn't so great. It's almost like he can flip a switch. Like he can be this really successful army man. He can obviously write. He can have a construction company. He can have a girlfriend. And then like, boom, he has these thoughts in his head. That's the scariest kind of person in my opinion. Yeah. Where they can just live a double life. And that's what he referred to it. He said since the age of 14, he's basically been practicing how to carry on. Oh, wow. A normal presence in the outside world that he wouldn't be detected, but also clearly gave in to some really sick, sick thoughts. Unfortunately, he also had a 10-year-old daughter. I say unfortunately because this family, I do want to point out, I researched this heavily. There was at no point that they were aware that this was going on. Like the FBI cleared them of of any understanding. Obviously, the 10-year-old, of course, she doesn't know. But the girlfriend had no idea this was going on. So he truly could really perform a double life quite well. And she said that he was a pretty good family man. Went to work, came home, ran his business. They went on family vacations, as you'll see later. Like She had absolutely no idea. One night on February 1st, 2012, fueled by this sick need of his, he approached a coffee cart where 18-year-old Samantha Koenig was working. For those that are not familiar, in Alaska, there seems to be one of these coffee carts on every street. They're almost like tiny little barns. Some of them have whimsical, I, I remember one looked like a wagon and had some like punny name, but they're usually ran by high school age employees, generally female, and serve up some of the best coffee I've ever had in my life. When I was in middle and high school, it was, you know, the popular girls who worked at these stands. It wasn't Starbucks on your morning coffee cup that was coveted. It was truly getting like these frothy frozen drinks from the stand. You'd walk into school like, I just spent like $10 on this thing. They sound really good. They were pretty good. They were really good, actually. I didn't even like coffee at the time, but you bet I learned then to like it and guzzle these down to fit in with the cool kids because everybody had one. I point this out because these carts, while they were a popular workplace, it also meant there's young females working usually in pairs or by themselves in these small carts. This was the case for Samantha. She was a gorgeous 18-year-old and was winding down her workday around 8 p.m. when Israel Keyes walked up to the window, pointed a gun at her, told her it was just a robbery, and instructed her to turn off the lights inside the coffee cart. As soon as the lights were off, and this is all on surveillance, you can actually watch this, he climbed through the window, binding her hands, stuffed napkins into her mouth, and led her out the door to his pickup truck. I will say that Samantha had no intentions of going with this man, and she did actually escape just briefly, but he ended up grabbing her again. And during the drive, he reassured her, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to hold you for ransom. Ugh, that's so scary. So she's just working her day, making her little frothy drinks. And then I feel like anytime anyone's held at gunpoint, they're going to do whatever is asked. Absolutely. I mean, I honestly would too. Like, I'm not going to lie. And you she, don't even have to show me a gun. If yeah. you just make me nervous, I'm probably going to try to mm-hmm. appease and like go along with it to like buy my time to figure out how to get out of this situation. 
it's terrible. I did watch the surveillance video while it doesn't show everything. You can just tell immediately she's like happy going about her day. And then in an instant, everything changes. And I'm assuming this wasn't necessarily a busy time of day or the busiest of streets. No, who's getting coffee at 8 o'clock p.m.? And you got to realize Anchorage is, yes, the most populated part of Alaska, but it is, it's a big area. It's very spread out. So like the city of Anchorage might only be a few, you know, city miles, but then Anchorage itself, like city limits, is way wider than. Well, and what month was this in? This is in February. So it's dark as Very, very dark. Yeah. There's not a light in the sky unless it's the moon. He brought her to his house where she remained tied up until around 2 a.m. Why did he keep her there so long, probably freezing in the Alaskan winter in the back of his truck? Because he had family inside. Israel had to make sure that his daughter and girlfriend were fast asleep before he could go about his dirty deeds. He then pulled the Shiver and Samantha from the truck and brought her into his tool shed and restrained her by the neck. I just showed Annie a picture. Of course, we're going to put it on our Instagram at A Case of Sunday Scaries. This tool shed is not blocks and blocks away. It's literally right next door, like a few steps away from the front door. Absolutely. It does have a separate entrance, so it's not like the house is connected. This sicko then went inside, again, making sure his girlfriend and daughter were sleeping soundly, poured himself a glass of wine, and went back out to the shed. I don't know why this one thing that just seems like such a human thing to do, like you get home from a long work day, you pour yourself a glass of wine to wind down. I don't know why this stuck out to me, but maybe it's just like another example of something that we would normally do in our daily lives that even just this small thing with him is is so sick. It is odd because like we typically think of having a glass of wine to either calm down or go out and party. And it's like what he's probably about to do. He's bringing alcohol out there. Like he's going to enjoy this. Thank you. That's exactly kind of what my thought was, is that this is a celebration. To then terrify Samantha even more than she already was, Israel reportedly drank the wine calmly, sitting in front of Samantha, explaining in detail how he was going to sexually assault her and then strangle her with the rope already tied around her neck. Oh my gosh. And he's just sitting there sipping his wine. Telling her how she's going to meet this horrible fate. And there's nothing she can do. And that tool shed is not big. No. And this is what I mean. Everything he does is deplorable, but how he seemingly enjoys watching this fear, because that's what he's doing when he's having this conversation with her. It's not like he's doing final rites over her because he's a cap. Like, none of that. There's not any sanctimonious thing. He's just watching her be scared for her life and then taking her life from her. There's just a massive imbalance of control, and you'll see that throughout his crimes. But out of respect for Samantha's memory, I'm not going to go into any more details here. But Israel carried out the plan he had told her about, and terribly in the early hours of February 2nd, Samantha's young life was ended by this absolutely despicable, he's not even a human, animal. He's an animal. Yeah, he's an animal. I agree. But again, what's a man to do? He goes into his home. Samantha is still in that tool shed packs a bag for his girlfriend and himself, and one for his 10-year-old daughter, woke them up, had some breakfast, and at 5 a.m. sharp, just hours out as he had, with his hands, taken away Samantha's life, calls a cab to take them to the Anchorage airport, not to flee the scene, but because they had a family vacation plan that day, they were going on a two-week cruise to the Caribbean. And he just left her body in the tool shed? Yeah. Every detail of it. So I'm like, wait, what? He did what? It's the fact this was like his kumbaya off for two weeks to the Caribbean islands. Yeah. I'm going to go have a great time with my family after taking 
somebody else's daughter away from so it. disconnected he seems like that just like he can just wash his hands of something horrific and then go lay on the beach for a bit it, I, I cannot fathom this to be able to compartmentalize what you just did and to truly have no remorse like this is a man who has a child from all accounts, he was a good dad to and this a daughter child. of all exactly. of all genders. Like, and he's going to go do this to someone else's daughter, and then be like, "All right, time to go on our Caribbean cruise." There's pictures of them as a family. I'm not going to show it because I don't want his daughter or you know girlfriend at the time in them. But they're sitting there smiling. He has like a lay around him. He has the tropical you know dad cruise shirt on, and it's like, "You bastard! Yeah, how dare you? Take a breath." Samantha was reported missing by her parents the very next day. And while there was camera footage of what happened inside the coffee cart, Israel had masked his identity enough. And with the lights also being off, it was pretty useless as far as identifying her kidnapper. I watched the surveillance tape and it's just awful how, like I said, how quickly her face turns from like, I'm going to have the night off. Samantha had a boyfriend. Maybe she had planned to hang out with him. Like, who knows? But it's 8 o'clock p.m. as an 18-year-old. She's off work. And then in an instant, you just see terror on her face. Israel returned from his vacation on February 17th. And as you will see, was the case with many of his previous victims. He didn't just take their lives. He also used his victims as a way to get even more stealing from their household or as he told samantha he would he actually did end up using her to collect ransom this part is going to get quite graphic so if you need to skip ahead if you're on you know your iphone push that tap forward button twice and we should be done talking about this but i think it just shows the depravity of him so i am going to go into some gory details here Israel then staged Samantha's body, and I want to remind you all that this is February in Alaska, and when normally a body, obviously left to the wilderness, would be pretty far into the decomposition process after two weeks. This is Alaska. This is February in Alaska. The average temperature in Anchorage in February is 27 degrees, which so it's is like a freezer almost. Exactly. It's well below the freezing point, so this really preserved her body quite well. He propped Samantha up against the wall, sewed her eyelids open with fishing line, then braided her hair and applied makeup to her face to make her appear more alive, which was one of those little details like the wine that mm-hmm. stuck out to me, especially as someone who's a makeup artist. He did so many things throughout his life to make sure that he wasn't caught. So he's not going down to CVS to get this makeup. I'm picturing him opening that bag that his girlfriend had packed for vacation taking her makeup out, going out to the shed just five feet away from where his like, and you know, I might be exaggerating when I say five feet, but very close to where his family is going about their daily activities and basically stealing her makeup to go put it on to Samantha's dead corpse. so messed up. And then what? He does this and then goes and returns the makeup to his girlfriend? Like, it's it's just so twisted. It is. It's so twisted. Like, I've never heard of someone doing anything even like that or think, I mean, you're right. If he went down to CVS and got made, it might look a little odd. So he was working with what he had. But who thinks of that? Israel Keys. That's who. Israel Keys. He then held up a recent Anchorage Daily newspaper. So the date was on it. He held this paper up to her face with the current date as a proof of life picture. Oh, interesting. While I've never seen this photo, nor do I want to, has never been released to the public, I did see a recreation of it that they used for trial. Does she look, I mean... Well, the person in the picture is alive. 
right? Because they're, they're doing a recreation. True. They're yeah. never going to release that photo. I can't imagine how just traumatic that would be for Samantha's family. And oh. we don't need to see that. Right. Like, no. I wonder if it was believable to the family. It was. It was. Okay. Unfortunately, it was believable enough because then he sent a text from Samantha's phone that he had in his possession from the night of her abduction. He sent this text to her boyfriend. He instructed her boyfriend to look for a package in a specific Anchorage park. The text, we will put up a screenshot of it. It went a little bit more detailed, but I'm going to leave it there. The police and the FBI, who are now involved in this case, found the package, and inside was a ransom note and the photo of Samantha. They believed it and followed the instructions and deposited money into Samantha's account as he instructed them to do. Sadly, their daughter had been dead for over two weeks at this point, and as it's obvious to us, but not to them. She's not going to be returning from this alive and they have no idea. So this was their moment of hope that like, it's just about money and I'm going to get my daughter back. Instead, Israel had already put her remains in a frozen lake in Palmer, Alaska. He drove to the lake, drilled a hole for ice fishing, puts her remains into the lake and then continued on with his day ice fishing. I was going to say, please tell me this man did not actually go ice fishing after Bringing doing this. the fish home to his family for a nice evening meal, the fish he had caught that day, after dumping poor Samantha's remains, not giving her family the opportunity to, like... So sick. How cold can you be? No remorse. There's just so Something's many little yeah. things yeah. in this case. That it's like, what is going on in your head, buddy? Like, how do you not... Maybe you don't think this is weird or gross, but like to go feed these fish to your family knowing full well what you just did. I have no words for him. He's he's just unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. Now, here's where Israel Keys finally got too cocky at his own skills because he began making withdrawals from different ATMs with Samantha's debit card. An ATM camera in Arizona caught a masked man withdrawing money. And he went all the way to Arizona? This man goes all over to commit these crimes. You will soon find out. This is the only crime that we know of that he actually did in like his hometown in Alaska where he had moved. But thankfully, it also captured the white Ford Focus that he had rented. On March 13th, a Texas, now we're over in Texas because he's going all over the place, a Texas state trooper spotted the car in a hotel parking lot. A round of applause for this officer because he waited for Israel to get in the car and then slowly began following him. The second that Israel went barely above the speed limit, you know, lights mm-hmm. on, the whole thing, he pulls him over, remains pretty cool and composed. I don't know how, because I'd be like, dude, I heard about you on the radio. Yeah, like, you scare me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, pulls him over and decides to search his vehicle, which you can do if you already broke the law, you were speeding. In the car, he found Samantha's ATM card, her cell phone, as well as the disguise Israel had used when withdrawing money from her account. He was immediately arrested and sent back to Alaska to stand trial for the murder of Samantha Koenig. Here is where this already terrible case becomes even worse. Israel Keys didn't have a criminal history besides driving under the influence, which, yes, is serious, but... It's not killing someone serious. Well, and it's not putting him on the radar of police. Right. They thought they had just captured Samantha's killer, But what they didn't know is they had captured a serial killer, one that to this day we are not sure how many victims' lives he took. Israel confessed to killing Samantha, but can you imagine the look on the faces of those detectives when he also lets them know and kind of drops the bomb? By the way, she wasn't the first. (laughs) 
Israel Keyes had begun his killing spree in 2001, 16 years before the murder of Samantha. Unlike many serial killers who have a specific victim profile, he didn't. Which he, makes him even more unpredictable and harder to catch. Absolutely. Because it's like a wild, it's like a wild Uno card with him. He doesn't care about race. He seems to somewhat care about gender just because there's a sexual motivation mm-hmm. to a lot of his crimes. But that Age, doesn't mean nothing like that. Absolutely nothing. It's just a crime of they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's so scary. Even more. Yeah. It, it's even more scary somehow. It also would make them incredibly hard to tie back to him right because he has no it's not a revenge killing it's not we all know this we've we've researched enough of this you start investigating the people closest you know when someone is murdered who did they know what enemies did they have and these people didn't know israel and typically serial killers have a profile of like okay they go for this hair color maybe every year on the same day it strikes but for him to be so sporadic and unpredictable no wonder that i mean no wonder they didn't catch him until samantha Right. And before Samantha, he had never killed close to his home. In fact, he had numerous kill kits. If you've heard the name Israel Keys, you've probably also heard about his kill kits. This was kind of his own particular MO, if you will. He would buy weapons and tools that he would use for these crimes and hide them all over the country. He would pay cash for these items, cash for plane tickets, and he would take the battery out of his cell phone before reaching his destination to further avoid detection. So he was never in the same car, he was never in the same place, and he had these kits whenever the mood struck him. And he was using cash. Yeah. Whenever the mood struck him, he would go and dig up one of these kits, and then the first person that crosses his path, you're donezo. I'm going to run through a list of crimes that have either already been confirmed by Israel himself, but also the crimes that he didn't confess to that are suspected that he committed. Israel, strangely, was very concerned with his reputation, especially with his daughter's opinion of him. I don't know if this goes back to him never getting, like, the approval of his parents that he wanted. Or how they kicked him out of the house. And he, you know, kids do need that approval. They need, you know, and I know that not everyone gets it, but I think that even looking at serial killers, if there's that dynamic it can be a red flag, not as big as like killing animals or anything like that, but sure. they have like that little hole that they need to fill up from the parents. Well, so. it seems that he was kind of living out this approval through his daughter. He was very much concerned about her idea of him as the public got out. Keep in mind, this is the second Alaska serial killer I've covered. Robert Hansen had the same thing. He didn't want his daughter to know That's about right. the extent of his crime. So yeah. it's just really interesting that these men could do these despicable things to girls especially like you said when they have daughters and then go do it to someone else's daughter and they'd be like oh i don't want her to think bad of me like unless your daughter is truly like apple doesn't fall far from the tree she's gonna think badly of you absolutely it doesn't matter who your victim was she's going to think that you are the trash human that you are and be traumatized by the fact that she loved this man and now has to wrestle with the fact that he was this cold-blooded killer But I point this out because he said during his many taped confessions that he had one rule for himself. He would never kill children or parents of children. I'm immediately calling bullshit on this. Do you remember what Samantha's age was? 18. She is a child. Do you remember the age that he suspected his first sexual assault victim was? 14 to 18. Those are children. Yeah, that does not make sense. 
they have their entire lives ahead of them. Maybe Samantha's not legally and a you know a but child she's anymore. A baby. I I hate that like eighteen year an adult. Like no, she had her whole life. She was a child. She is a child. That is a child. So if you're willing to sexually assault a girl who you suspected to be between fourteen and eighteen and kill Samantha who's eighteen, I can't believe you, Mister Israel. Like you're holier than out. Like I don't kill children or parents of children. No, he was protecting his ass before he went to prison mm-hmm. because we know what happens Good to point. prisoners who go to jail that are accused of sexually assaulting children. They do not fare well. This is all about Israel. Maybe, yes, there was a moment of him like, oh, I don't want my daughter to know about that. Sure. Israel, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt on But to me, you're just protecting your ass for your reputation when you go to jail. Amen. Like, don't try to come off as you're like this nice person. You're a murderer and a rapist. You're not nice. Police suspect Israel also murdered Julie Harris. Thought you were mad before. Wait to get even more mad because Julie, sweet Julie Harris, was a 12-year-old Special Olympics medalist in skiing who disappeared from Colville, where he lived at the time of her disappearance. She was a double amputee whose prosthetic feet were found at the Colville River a month after her disappearance. Her remains were found a year later in the forest. To me, this is so just unbelievable, like against everything that has some semblance of humanity because not only are you already attacking children who you said that you didn't but if he was the person that did this children are the most vulnerable around us right they depend on their parents or like guardians for everything to stay alive basically yeah truly so you're attacking already the most vulnerable among us but to attack a disabled child is the most cowardly thing it that is. I can think of. I don't even have words. That's so sad. And, you know, I hate to use the phrase like pick on someone your own size because I don't want this man coming close to any other human being. So don't get me wrong when I say that. But to pick on a girl potentially, again, he never confessed this, but would he? You no. Know? I don't think he would. I don't either. But to attack a girl that didn't have legs that already takes away any opportunity she might have to get away from you she's 12 years old like you're 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 a piece of shit if you did this um i did see and i'll link it of course i'll link all my resources this is an ongoing investigation because friends of julie have come forward because they think that potentially they remember israel talking to her at the pool oh like a community pool but of course it's been quite a few years and from your from the note earlier, he's not, he's dead, right? Oh, yeah, he's exactly okay. where he was. I'm just having to, like, sorry I'm doing deep sighs and breathing during this, but this man just really, there's so many small details about these cases that just. This is a wild one. This is one that I'm like, I was not prepared for this. I, I've heard of Israel Keys, like I said, that small Lawrence Beer connection, but like, I was not expecting all of this. Well, and there's so many little details that, for me at least, are so troubling. Like, of course, what he did is terrible, but it's all these little things that he would do that just show how much he lacked a soul. This man is soulless. That's the perfect way to put it. Cassie Emerson was reported missing after her mother's body was found in a burned trailer in 1997. Cassie's remains would be found a year later, 13 miles from her home. Again, a child under the age of 18. Israel never confessed to killing either girl, but he admitted his first arson was a home that was a trailer. So you guys can be the judge of that. Unfortunately, I doubt that that case will ever be formally tied to him. But police suspect that since he was in the area, this goes along with his pattern of arson, 
with attacking young girls, even though he said he never did. And with unpredictability. Because who's like if they're having a hard time connecting it to him or looking, it's like, well, he did what he achieved, what he set out to achieve, because you can never put your finger on this guy, I feel like. Well, thankfully, at some point they were able to. Israel said he never murdered anyone during his time in the army, but did confess that he attempted two sexual assaults on women. One was with a sex worker and another a college student he had befriended during his time stationed in Egypt. He confessed to killing four people in Washington but did not give any further details. He did say that one had been, I guess, buried in the lake is not the right word, but their remains had been put in the lake and that he had weighted them down. There is still a review of missing people in the area. They know that he did own a boat in Washington, so everything he's saying is credible that mm-hmm. like it definitely it could happened. have happened. But there isn't anything that could be concretely connected to Israel. Israel may have even been the serial murderer nicknamed the Boca Killer. The Boca Killer was responsible for a series of murders in Boca Raton, Florida. Guess where he was also known to have gone. The first of the Boca Killer cases that were believed to be linked to Keys was the murder of Randy Gorenberg, who in March 2007 was abducted from a shopping mall parking lot. Within an hour, her body with two fatal bullet wounds was dumped at a different location. This kind of lines up as far as like crime of opportunity, but he we only know of one other time that a gun was used in a way to actually end the person's life. He often used them, it seems like, as a more to get what he wanted in the moment. Got it. As like as a weapon to threaten someone. But not to actually cause a physical harm. The second crime was the kidnapping of an unidentified woman who claimed she and her toddler son were abducted from a shopping mall in August seventh. 2007, so around the same time a couple months later. Her kidnapper wore a mask and sunglasses, but the victim caught glimpses of his face and described him as tall, athletically built man with long hair and generally matched Key's description. This woman was released unharmed after the assailant forced her to withdraw cash from an ATM. Oh, it's sounding just like Israel. The third Boca killer case was the murder of Nancy, and I'm so sorry, I looked up the pronunciation of this name numerous times, but I'm afraid I'm going to butcher it. Nancy Bocchino. I'm going to spell it, actually. It's B-O-C-H-I-C-C-H-I-O. Nancy was 47 years old and had a 7-year-old daughter, Joey, with her. They were both found fatally shot in their vehicle in a mall parking lot on December 12, 2007. Israel confessed to at least one murder in New York State, but did not give any more details. Police consider this confession credible because it matches when Keyes was in New York, and the FBI would later confirm that he had robbed, around the time he said this murder happened, the community bank in New York. They were actually able to tie this bank robbery to him. He confessed to robbing a home and setting it on fire in Texas. That's not the end of this list, guys. He's all over the place. And that's why it was so hard to track him down, because he had these kits strategically placed wherever he might want to go. The FBI believed that Israel may have murdered a New Jersey woman named Deborah Feldman in 2009 and buried her in New York. He was being shown missing persons pictures during the time that he was known to be in the area, and he got visibly rattled when Deborah's picture was placed in front of him. Sadly, her body has never been recovered. During a police interview, this was the exchange between Israel and Assistant U.S. Attorney Kevin Fields. Israel, I'll tell you everything. I'll give you every single gory detail you want. But I want an execution date. 
The assistant attorney, Kevin Fields, responded, for you? To which he said, yes. He then said, I want to promise that I'll get the death penalty. If you do that, then I'll I'll tell you all the people I killed. What we responded to him was, the more murders you give us, the more likely it is that they are going to impose the death penalty on you. But we couldn't guarantee that he would get an execution date. Keyes was reluctant to say anything more, so U.S. Attorney Kevin Field said, Give me something to work with. Hold a bunch of your cards back, but just give me one card. Finally, Israel Keyes said, All right, I'll give you two bodies and a name. And here, folks, is where we learn about his murder kits. The confession of killing Bill and Loran Courier. In 2009, he broke into their home, tied them up, robbed them, Then he drove them to a farmhouse where he shot Bill in front of Lorraine, then sexually assaulted her and strangled her to death. Sadly, their bodies have never been found. Israel told police that he had hit a kit in that area two years prior to breaking into that home. Once he had killed them, he drove the kit miles and miles away from Vermont and hid it in New York. Police were able to obtain the murder kit from where he said it was hidden, which confirmed this disgusting story. But I want to go back to that two years thing. How long has he been doing this and planning these things? Well, and in my head, I'm going, how many cold cases could be tied to him? Because he is, I've said it, all over the place. He truly is. And to give you an idea of the lengths he took to not be suspected of his murders, not only did he hide this kit two years prior to ever using it, just waiting for a rainy day to come where he would have these terrible urges of his, but he took a flight from Anchorage to Chicago, then rented a car with cash, of course, drove over a thousand miles in that car to Vermont to get this kill kit. I wonder, okay, this is like a side note, but how was he getting away with traveling? Was he telling his girlfriend and daughter he was going on construction trips? I'm sure. He probably said he had to travel for work. He was the owner of a construction company. So it kind of makes sense. And it seems like, you know, I'm not trying to judge his house, but it seems like he was doing okay for Mm -hmm. himself. You know, he had a boat. He had, you know, all these things. So they just had no idea. And I'm sorry if if my husband owned a company, I probably wouldn't think much of it if he said he had a work trip unless he had a really hot assistant. Yeah. (laughs) And then I'm going to be like Shakira and start measuring the jam. (laughs) Did you hear? I did. I did. I was like, oh, Shakira, check those hips, girl. (laughs) I don't know if that's true, but I love that little fact. Yeah. Anyway, back to the case. The investigators on this case had to have nerves of steel because I watched some of the release tapes of the interviews and it is wild to me how callously he talks about these things. And the investigators that are in the room with him have to feed into this man's overinflated ego and make him feel he's in control even in this situation. He's the prisoner. They got him candy bars. They got him cigars. They got him Starbucks coffee. They were getting him whatever he wanted to feed into his ego of like, you're still in control here, buddy. You tell us what you're ready. We're just going to sit here and listen to you. Those are some good cops then. Absolutely. But could you imagine being the investigator? Mm-hmm. I'd like, what if you had kids of your own and you're sitting there like, this man could have done this to my child, my son, my daughter. And you had to sit there and like placate him with his Snickers candy bar. Apparently he had a real thing for Snickers and that's what he kept asking you're for. You're not yourself when you don't have a Snickers. I don't want Israel Keys to be himself. No. Keep the Snickers away from Israel Keys. Thank I you very much. I think the only much. thing that probably comforted the investigators was like 
He is here. He is locked away, right? He's not out on the streets continuing to wreak havoc. That'd be a small piece of comfort that probably helped them get through those sessions, but I cannot imagine. I couldn't do it. I really couldn't. I would be flying over that table and doing not so I least things that. to that person. I can picture it. <laughs> I, again, I am not someone that chooses violence. But it would be very hard, even as someone who's not a parent, it would be very hard to sit in front of someone and hear them so casually describe how they hurt what I view as a child. An 18-year-old in my eyes, that is a child. Of course, it's sad that he did this to anyone, but oh, I'd be climbing over that table to get to him. (laughs) There's a lot of bizarre things like those weird requests for Starbucks and Snicker bars that surrounded his incarceration. From his seemingly uncharacteristic worry about his reputation in his daughter's eyes. And also his idolization of Ted Bundy. He really looked up to that man. Even managing to attempt a courtroom escape exactly the same way Ted Bundy did. Thankfully, he was apprehended right away in the courtroom. He didn't get very far. But to go back to our episode about another Alaskan serial killer, Butcher Baker... When investigators asked Israel if he knew about Robert Hansen, a.k.a. the Butcher Baker, and I listened to his voice when he said it, and I will do my best impersonation of it here. When they asked him if he knew about him, he reportedly got very animated and responded, Yeah, I know all about him. I probably know every single serial killer that's ever been written about. It's kind of a hobby of mine. Red flag. Well, here's the thing. We're sitting here saying that we do a true crime podcast. But here's the difference. Red flag. No. (laughs) We are not idolizing these right, people. Right. I want to talk about the victims. I want to talk about mental health. I want to talk about what is going on to these people that are being attacked for no reason to these innocent people. But he, on the other side of the coin, is probably the one that would be getting like tattoos of Ted Bundy on it. Yeah, we don't get giddy whenever we talk about his cases. We're usually mad or really sad. And he seems like he was very excited when Yeah, he asked did a ton that. of studying. He read Mindhunter. He really enjoyed trying to find out the why, but unlike us trying to make sense of something senseless, he might have just been studying up how to get away with it and what they caught, which makes me think of the Idaho case, but I'm just going to put that out there. All right, off my little tangent. (laughs) One of the most tragic parts of this case is that on December 2nd, 2012, before Samantha's family would ever see justice for their daughter, The coward-ass piece of shit Israel Keyes snuck a razor into his jail cell, cut his wrists, and attempted to strangle himself. Unfortunately, he was successful with his suicide. Beneath his body was the suicide letter that I read to you at the opening of this episode. Unfortunately, there's parts of it that we can't read because it was soaked in his blood. Drawn in his own blood on another paper found tucked beneath his bed was 11 skulls and a pentagram with the words, We are one. Again, written in his blood. Eleven skulls. It's believed that these skulls were the last clue left by Israel Keys, and that the pentagram represents his last victim, Israel Keys himself. Wow. Before we go into your thoughts on this, I do want to point out, and I wasn't going to include this, but I feel like I have to. I just didn't know how to word this. They infer from this last drawing of his in his own blood that there's eleven victims. That was his like last claim, his last clue to However, he lived in Alaska. He drove the Alcan Highway quite often. For those that you don't know, that's the one highway we have connecting us to what we call the lower 48. They asked if he ever did any crimes in Canada, and he said Canadians don't count. Oh. So I throw that in not because I have a shared belief. I love y'all, and I love some poutine, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Keep it real. Keep it real. (laughs) 
But what this might be referring to is that there's 11 victims from the U.S. Who knows if there's more? Wow. I don't get why he wouldn't think Canadians are... I have no idea. Maybe they're just like so nice and pleasant. I don't uh... I yeah. know. I don't know. None of it makes any sense to me. But what haunts me about this case is we will probably never know the scope of his crimes. The families may never have the answers that he took with him into death. When I opened this episode, I read parts of his suicide note, and I did that because it shows just how little he regarded human life. And even in his own death, he selfishly took all his secrets with him. Secrets that could have given these families answers about their missing loved ones. Obviously, we hope that tips come in still, right? This wasn't that long ago. Maybe someone will unearth another one of his kill kits because they are out there. Maybe he'll leave a piece of hair at a crime scene and we can use some new DNA testing or something. Here's hoping. But I just hope that someday they have closure and that they can tie this to him. But if you guys, for some reason, happen to know anything about the cases that we talked about today, the FBI desperately is still looking into this case. They want to tie anything they can, not because to give him more fame, more, you know, what's the word? Infamous. Make him infamous. But because these families deserve answers. Absolutely. So the FBI tip line is 1-800-CALL-FBI. Pretty easy to remember. <laughs> it is easy. Wow. I think we should all know that line just <laughs> in case. But obviously, if you were in some of these areas, Texas, Arizona, New York, Vermont, like the list goes on and on, Alaska, for Christ's sakes, and know anything that could help get this family their answers, they are desperately still seeking tips. Well, that was a... Uh... That was a wild one. This is why I don't cover serial killers because it, I just can't. I sit here and I'm like, who else is there? They're around us in everyday society. I mean, Israel Keys was like your average Joe. Yeah. And I'll post pictures of him. We say all the time, like, these aren't people that sometimes they do look like the boogeyman, but this is a handsome guy. Like, if he walked past me on the road I'd, handsome. at that time with his look, I'd be like, okay. Yeah. Hi, Israel. It's like they're just among you. And like you said, and this guy to me really stands out because the reasons he got away with it for so long, it seems like he never did it even in the same state twice as he got further along in his like horror career. I guess that's the best way to put it. That is a good way to put it. Yeah, he's unpredictable. And still, all right, kids, pack up the bag. Like we're going to Disney cruises. I wonder, like, I feel like with Samantha... Thankfully, he was pretty sloppy whenever he was using his her ATM, ATM card. card. I wonder if he wanted to get caught, if he was over it, or if he really slipped up that bad. I don't. I think you're giving him too much grace because for him to want to get caught, that would show. I mean, he was still pretty young at the time. That would show some bit of remorse for what he was doing. And his daughter was still young at that point, so he had this big, you know, I want to make sure my daughter like doesn't hate me kind of thing. So yeah, you're you're right. I mean, I can't, thankfully, I will never be in the mind of Israel disgusting man keys. Whenever anyone starts a letter with you, clever worm, I don't want to be in that mind either. No. And it's just, there's just not words to to understand or try to even, I don't want to understand him. I guess that's it. I don't want to understand him. I don't want to understand this man because to even understand a little bit of him is to understand darkness that I don't ever want to know in my lifetime. And it just makes me mad that this man was able to so calculate and fool so many people for so long and have God knows how many victims out there, whether it was murder, whether it was sexual assault, whether it was robbery, like none of this is okay. But he also left behind a little girl who I remember being that age. My dad was my everything. 
And she went overnight from daddy's little girl to someone who is going to be stained with this man's name. And she had to grow up real fast, which is not fair to her. It's awful. And, you know, they also, some of these families like Samantha's never got to see, of the things that he confessed to, never even got to see justice for him. Of course, you know, he's no longer with us. We don't have to worry about him. But it's still not fair that they didn't get to see any sense of justice for their daughter, whose life he took and then kind of waved it in their face with this horrible picture. That's so sad. He's the most twisted man. Anyway, there's a couple cases I told you about that really kind of stick with you, and he is definitely one. Thank you for joining us. As always, if you want to follow along, we will be back here in your ear holes every Sunday, but you can follow us on Instagram at A Case of the Sunday Scaries. We will also be having a lot more places very, very soon for you to be following us and supporting this podcast. We love having you here. We will see you next Sunday, but as always, until then.